I couldn't help but chuckle just a little bit at the dad jokes that Rich makes. Um, you know, because I'm a dad. And you know, when you become a dad, you realize you're not as funny as you thought you were. Um, at least everybody else realizes you're not funny, but you don't. Um, but it is a privilege to be a part of this community of faith. And over the last little while, I've shared with you out of Matthew's gospel, I'm not departing from that this morning, but I'm going to preach two more sermons on Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount in particular. This morning, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter five. I'm gonna read from verse 38 to 48, after which I will pray and you may be seated. So would you stand with me as we hear the word of God? Matthew chapter five, reading from verse 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. Father, this morning, I commit to you my desire to please you, to preach that which is true, and so I ask for your wisdom. I ask that I would be able to have the assurance and the confidence that somehow through the ordinary you speak your divine word to us. I pray this morning too that we would have receptive ears, open ears to hear that which you are saying to us. So Father, by your spirit may truth not only be heard but may truth set us free, free to live as you want us to live. If there be any conviction that comes through the preaching of your word, may that conviction be understood to be your loving way of correcting us, your way of leading us into your paths. So we submit ourselves now wholeheartedly as a community of faith to be hearers and doers of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Following Jesus is hard work. Being a disciple that follows him is difficult. Jesus' followers soon find out that if you begin to take Jesus seriously, that the bar's just a little higher than you'd like it to be. Um, I don't know where I caught this, but as I was growing up, I knew the importance of becoming a follower of Christ, not only his teachings and, and, and understanding what the Bible says about him, but following him in such a sense that my life revealed that I was living by the principles that I was learning. And it is important, I think, in my own life, as it is for you, that 
we understand ourselves not just to be believers. I, I, I think there's wisdom in being a believer. It's a word that is used of Christians, uh, I think generally speaking, but there's a sense in which believing is only a part of following. <laughs> you know, believing that not eating too many uh, hot dogs is not good for you and eating hot dogs is two different kinds of things. The kind of belief that Jesus invites us in is the kind of belief that transforms our very behavior. It transforms how we live. So when we use the word that I'm a Christian, I hope that by that we mean this, that it's not simply that I have a confession, a creed, I have said Jesus is Lord of my life, but then indeed, my life begins to reflect the way in which he is Lord. My actions, my interactions with others, does this reveal that I actually follow this Jesus closely enough that as the rabbinic saying goes, wherever he walks, the dust that his sandals kicks up kicks all over my entire being. You know you're a follower of Jesus when you begin to resemble the actions and the behaviors of Jesus. You know you're a disciple of Jesus when your life begins to produce things that are sometimes conspicuously different to the prevailing culture. So, when Jesus invites disciples to follow him, they don't really know what they're getting themselves into. <laughs> and it is as they follow that they begin to learn things about this kingdom that, that, that might be surprising to them. Jesus would have them believe that sometimes the way in which they have thought about life is remarkably different to the way in which this kingdom that he is birthing is going to uh, occur. For example, when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, he's referring to the Old Testament view of justice. The Old Testament view of justice is, if you punch me in the right eye, I'm gonna punch you in the left. If you take something from me, I'm going to enact my retribution principle and take something from you. If you steal something from me, whoever adjudicates oversees the believing community, the Hebrew people will make sure that I, uh, that in order for the other person to get justice, that person may be able to take something of equal value back from you. But Jesus would say that this rule, this way of thinking about life is not actually the ethic of what it means to live by the kingdom rule. I want you to hear this. Many Christians believe that if I just kind of live by the rules, I get who God is. Many people think that to be Christian is to be law abiding. Now while I am not here to spread a message of anarchy, I want you to hear that Jesus challenges disciples to follow beyond the law and the rule. His ethic of life, his way of life, challenges us to consider ways of living that might be acceptable in the prevailing culture, but for us as Christians is not sufficient to reveal who he is. Law-abiding person does not equal disciple. Rule-abiding person does not equal follower. Jesus wants much more for us than simply dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And as these disciples begin to follow him, he begins to teach them this ethic 
of love. What does it mean to represent God in this world at a time in the first century where there was lots of violence, where there was lots of reasons for those who want to take God seriously to do to others what has been done to them. We know that when Jesus walked the earth and when people started to follow him, that they lived in a particular time, they lived in a particular time where this principle of retribution was the way about which people thought life was supposed to be determined and governed. I would suggest to you, and stay with me for a moment because my last 30 seconds are usually the best. I would suggest to you this morning that the same principle seems to govern how most of us think about life. In fact, one of the reasons Jesus' words, if you take it seriously, appears shocking to us, is because we do not live by the ethic of the kingdom in our minds. We think of life as give and take. I get what I deserve, and I give what you deserve. But for Christians, we learn that the kingdom ethic is getting what we do not deserve. In other words, to put it a different way, you can live by this form of justice, or you can live by the form of kingdom ethic that Jesus gives, which is grace. Grace, and if you've been to Bible college, you know, what, what, what do we define it as? It begins with unmerited is the word, Come on. Unmerited kindness or favor of God. I want to suggest a very simple colloquial way of saying this. It is getting what we do not deserve. And when grace permeates our being, when we understand that we have been given forgiveness where perhaps we deserve punishment, when we have been shown mercy, when perhaps we deserved to be held accountable, there is a sense in which we begin to understand that we can live beyond the norm of culture and live the way that Jesus has called us to live. Now let me suggest to you that you should not read these and be literal. I think there's a problem in the prevailing evangelical culture. We have people interpreting the Bible in such literal ways that it is harmful. When I say don't interpret literally, I'm not saying don't take it seriously. When I say don't always interpret it literally, I'm not suggesting that the word of God is not clear in certain places, but the word of God itself is the revelation of who God is through the person of Jesus Christ. There's a lot more going on in the word than just meets the eye. And I wanna say this very sincerely to you as Christians. Please do not be the kinds of people that only spend time in the word on your own, by yourself, you need other people to help you understand God's word. I am more convinced that we need to study the word of God in community so that we will not lean into our limited perspectives on our own, but indeed learn from one another. Just a side point, but I think the danger in the West is we've made our spirituality so individual that even when we need the help of others to understand the word in its breadth and its depth, we have settled for a very singular approach that limits our understanding. 
One of the biggest gifts that I have in my life is a community of people that I meet with on a weekly basis around the word of God. And in that context, yes, I'm the pastor with the theology degree, but I learn almost every week from others who also look at the word and who also have the way of God revealed to them. And I, as a pastor, have my own understanding enhanced and grown. I encourage you to do the same. I encourage you to do the same because the Bible requires help to understand. And if you're a person sitting here and saying, Stu, you know, I read the Bible, uh, I'm gonna be very generous. I read the Bible daily. I study it daily. I don't think I've changed my perspective over the years of what I've known, then I would say to you, There's something about being committed to what God gives us in his word that actually transforms us over time. And so I encourage you as a side point to make time for the word of God. But back to my message, an eye for an eye. If you're the kind of person as a Christian that lives by this principle, grace is very hard for you to extend to other people. If you're the kind of person that looks at life through the lens of what the culture says is acceptable, you do wrong, we'll do wrong to you. You take, we'll take from you. Then you will not have the capacity to witness to this world about what God can do in and through the life of those who begin to know his grace. So Jesus uses four examples from the prevailing culture. The first one is this, to be struck on the cheek. Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Now, Sam, I'm going to invite you up here for a a slapping contest. I won't do that, no. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to make an illustration. Jesus is specific when he says this. Do you remember? He says, if someone slaps you on the left cheek. If I'm a right-handed person, right hand, How do I slap on the left cheek? Take my hand if I really want to do some damage. My left hand is usually weaker. And I'm going to slap you on the left cheek. To be slapped with the outside of the hand in a shame and honor culture was incredibly disrespectful. In other words, we struggle to understand the severity of what Jesus is teaching because to be treated this way is to be demeaned, is to be disregarded, is to be abused in some form in that particular culture. So for me to slap Sam with the right hand on the left cheek was to demean him. And Jesus says this, offer the other cheek also. So once I've slapped you like this, I hope this is not on video, once I slapped you like this, I come back and you offer me the other cheek and I slap you on this side. When I read some commentaries, thank you, you were a great, great person to slap. When I read some commentaries on this, and I'm not sure I agree with all the commentators, but one of the commentators says, by turning the right cheek or giving the other cheek, what you were saying is, I have more dignity than that, you are now slapping me as an equal. (laughs) I don't know if I like that. Hey, I'm gonna show you that I have worth and value by turning the other cheek so that when you slap me, you have to now reconsider how you see me, but interesting. And so in other words, when Jesus teaches, he's saying to them, you understand in the prevailing culture that when others look at you, they will look at you with such disdain that they may in fact slap you. Instead of retaliating, now hear the ethic. 
In the world we live in, violence begets violence. Tit for tat. We respond in accordance to what has been done for us in the individual relationships we have with one another. We tend to operate on the principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We feel justified. And by the way, in the prevailing culture, no one is going to say to you, turn the other cheek. This is what we say. Defend your rights. Stand up for yourself. Don't make yourself vulnerable. Don't be a sucker. Jesus, seriously? Seriously, when someone hits me and insults me, I'm supposed to turn the other cheek. I want you to grab hold of how intense this teaching must be for this particular time and this particular case. Not only does Jesus use the example of being struck on the cheek, he uses an example in a situation where somebody sues you for your shirt. It moves to a place where if someone sues you and wants your shirt, Jesus says, give them your outer coat also. Now get this, in biblical times, the way that people dress, men in particular, is they did not wear pants, no pants. But they wore long outer coats and shirts, for lack of a better way of describing. Jesus says, when someone sues you for this shirt, don't only give them the shirt, are you with me? I take off the only other thing you have to hide your nakedness and give it to them. Now think about it with me for a second. You sue me and you say, I'm gonna take your shirt and I said, no, you know what? <laughs> have it all so that you may see it all. I wonder, I wonder if Jesus, in the way that he's responding in the particular text, is trying to say something about how you reveal to others what it means to disregard them. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud, it's not even my main point. I have a good main point. But I want you again to think with me about how radical Jesus' teaching is. Someone sues you, takes your shirt. In fact, the Old Testament says they couldn't go further and take your coat because your coat in biblical times was also used as a blanket. And if you didn't have that for those who were poor, they had nothing to cover themselves with or to sleep in. So there's a sense in which Jesus challenges not only the prevailing perspective, but the Old Testament rules on this. And he says, if someone takes this, give them more than what they're taking. Then he moves on. It seems to get better as Jesus teaches. When a Roman soldier during that time came up to any of the subjects in the Roman Empire, he had the right to make you carry his gear, his equipment, or whatever he had on his person for one mile. The rule was that he could only do that for one mile. Jesus suggests that when a Roman soldier, and I couldn't help but think of Roman who's sitting right here. I'm not gonna make you come up, Roman, don't worry. When a Roman soldier makes you carry his gear for one mile, you do the unthinkable. Right at the end of a mile where most of us would be like, take your stuff back. I'm done. No one likes to be used, right? I, I don't like to be used. I feel sorry for people who have trucks. I think we use people with trucks all the time. I was looking for a contemporary example, you know. You're my best friend because you have the capacity to move my apartment. But at the end of walking a mile, carrying the Roman soldier's gear, I'm ready to throw it up. Jesus says, you are by all intent 
and rules in this prevailing culture legitimately able to do that. But I say to you, offer to carry the gear one more mile. I have to be honest with you. There's another example, but I'll stop there. I wonder what Jesus was after. I wonder if Jesus is trying to say to his disciples that the way in which you reveal what it means to be a part of this kingdom, a way in which you convey to others what it means to be my disciple is that you do not accept what others say is normative, but instead you live in such a way that you even offer more to those who are opposing you and demanding from you. I want you to hear the weight of the text, that even those who might be abusive to you in your context, you don't show them abuse as reciprocal to what they have done. You do not treat them the same way that they have treated you, but instead, you show them an ethic of compassion and grace that will make them notice that there's something remarkably different about you. Let me put it this way. At the end of a mile, if I offer to take it one more mile, I can do it one of two ways. I can do it this way. <laughs> Let me carry it another mile. Or there could be an ethic within me that says, I want you to see who I am. I want you to take note that there is something more to me. There is something in me that would make me want to help you, even serve you. If this does not rest with us, I don't think we get the strength of what it means to live as a Christian today. We talk about making God known. We talk about evangelism. And today in the West, we think that means this. We tell people about the Jesus we've come to know. I suggest to you today that one of the ways people will actually pay attention is when Christians live into the greater righteousness that Jesus came to fulfill, where we respond to even those who do not treat us fairly with grace, those who do not deserve mercy with mercy, those who abuse and come down on us in ways that take away the privilege and the rights we may feel we are justified to have, and we act with an ethic of love that is not only surprising but shocking to a prevailing culture. What speaks of who God is is not the ordinary actions of ordinary people following the ordinary everyday rules of the world in which justice is defined by an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but it is the Christian who takes the ethic of Jesus so seriously that they love even those who hate them. Are you wondering if I'm preaching the gospel? The examples that Jesus uses is followed by, you you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, with all that I've said so far, if I left you there and just go go and do this, that would be rather unfair, isn't it? And I must also say to you that I know what it's like to be on the other side of being mistreated. I'm not just talking about, you know, someone just stepping on your toe. (laughs) Some of you know real pain. Some of you know real hurt. Some of you have had people do things in your life that you say, Stu, you have no idea how deep this runs. You You have no idea how hard it is to do what Jesus is saying. If what Jesus is saying is true, 
I got to admit, Stu, I find this very hard to do. So I've reflected on this and I thought about this and I said to myself, how do we begin to embrace the kind of way of Jesus in a world that makes it very hard for us to offer mercy and grace? In a world and an experience of life that makes it very hard for us to be generous when others are not generous with us. You know, I wish Jesus said it this way, love those who love you. Care for those who care for you. Be nice to people from Skyview because you're a part of Skyview. Love only those who agree with your views. Be kind only to people who are kind. But Jesus says, no, love as I have loved you. The ethic of love is so much more hard, so much more difficult than any of us would care to admit when we take it seriously enough. And so I said to myself, how do I help you? How do I help me to not only hear hard work, but to hear hope? One of the reasons I find it hard to forgive other people or, as Jesus say, to go the extra mile for those who don't deserve it, is that I become blind to how much grace I need. If you want to access that part of your heart that God can use to transform in such a way so that you become a more gracious person to your spouse, can I just get an amen? Some spouses are like, I don't know if I should say amen. (laughs) To my children, to my parents, to my siblings. If we are going to become the kind of gracious people, it has to begin at home. And I want to suggest to you one of the ways it begins, or perhaps God can start doing work in your own heart and life, is to kind of strip away at the false pride we develop when it comes to what other people have done to us and recognize that we too have been in need of grace. One of the most transformative experiences in my life is when my wife has offered me, and I won't go into details of this, she may even sit there and go, which ones do? But when my wife offered me gentleness, kindness, and love at times where my actions were not deserving of it, I want to be honest to you that nothing softens a heart more than actually recognizing that grace has been given to you and to me also. If we do not begin there, we will not be a gracious people, and the idea of loving even our enemy becomes just an ideal in the Bible written thousands of years ago. But... If you begin to reflect on the places and the people that have shown you tremendous grace, they were soft when you were expecting them to be hard. They were forgiving when they were justified to hold your actions against you. Here's what happens over time. It's like layers on a table, you know, that you kind of lay, uh, what what do we call it here? I call it varnish growing up. What do you call it here? Sorry, help me out. Varnish is fine. I tried to do a, day, a table the other, you know, not the other day, two years ago, and I put so much, <laughs> I put so much varnish on it, it didn't turn out really well. But, but here's what happens in many of our lives. You know, it's layer upon layer upon layer. We, we, we don't actually deal with the real issues. And over time, we become oblivious to perhaps some of the situations and issues in our own life that requires God to come in and help us overcome. I wonder if, if some of us can, can allow the Holy Spirit to open up, to take away some of those layers that we have built up to help us function, to make it through, and to recognize that even when he scrapes down 
found everything that grace has found us, and because grace has found us, we are able to be gracious to others. I want you to hear that the Holy Spirit that lives in those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord enables us, not in our own strength, but through the strength of God, to be able to extend such grace even to those who are undeserving, because we know we are undeserving too. If you want to know how the world will be changed, it won't be because the government makes all the right policies and rules. Hear me now. I've used this illustration time upon time. South Africa got rid of apartheid, has a democratic society, apparently like most Western countries, and yet, resident within the hearts of many, on both sides of the racial divide, are hearts of prejudice. Because you can change laws, but the heart of man can only be touched and changed by the grace of God. It is when the grace of God grabs a hold of my life that I'm able to be less judgmental of my wife. It is when the grace of God grabs a hold of my life that my rightness is less important than reconciliation. It is when the grace of God seeps deep into me that I'm less arrogant, less defensive, less certain about my certainties and more open and desiring of right relationships with one another than I ever would be if I pretended that I'm always right and everybody else should get their act together. I want you to hear that the principle by which Jesus is teaching his disciples to love is not one of retribution or fair justice, but one of powerful grace. You say to me, okay, Stu, so you're saying, think about a time where you were forgiven, or think about a time where you were given grace when you deserved something worse. I think that remembering is important, but I think also what is equally important, and I do apologize because I rewrote this this morning, so I'm trying to get my language right and I process as I talk if you haven't figured it out. But another thing of, uh, that I think is helpful to me is I need to recognize that I often reveal the kind of love I've been given. Now stay with me for a second. If the love I've been given has been conditional, I only like you, Jonathan, when you let me beat you at, at, uh, at, at, at golf. I, I, I only like you in the parental home, son, when you're doing what I want you to do. When the perspectives that we have got of what love looks like are, are, are imperfect perfections, we often project those imperfect perfections in the relationships we have. The love that we've received is the love that we often give, is the point I'm making. So if you're looking for uh, an example of how to live this healthily, and some of us come out of very good homes, I'm not suggesting every home is bad. Some of us come out of bad homes and we come out real good by the grace of God. Some of us come out of good homes and we come out real bad. <laughs> 
The point I'm making is, is that very often times, the way that love has been impressed upon us is the way in which we tend to love others. And so if we are going to get to this kind of Jesus ethic, this way of loving as Jesus loves, which is not just about niceties to those who are nice to us, but loving even the enemy, I would suggest that we begin by looking to him and his example. Now, while that's a good theological point, that doesn't really stir your heart. You know, like, look to Jesus, blah, blah. Isn't that what pastors always preach? Point three, look to Jesus. But I want you to hear what that means. When you look at the life of Christ, there is absolutely nothing he asked his disciples to do that he did not do himself. I want you to grab a hold of the image on the cross. As they nailed him to the cross in that gruesome agony, and I can go into all the historical details of what crucifixion looked like and how you died and how gut-wrenching it was, but I won't because you are all educated people, you know this. I would say this to you, that on the very cross, the one who pierced his side and nailed his hands and his feet to that cross, he prays for. He prays, God, forgive them. You see... Now, 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 here's what good you know, evangelicals do. We go, but that was Jesus, do. That's Jesus. I'm not Jesus. You know what Jesus says? Jesus has such a high regard of his disciples. He says, you will do even greater things than me. I want you to hear. If you think about Jesus, think about how he became like us, not just to have a symbolic kind of connection to us, but to tell us that if I lived in the flesh as you live in the flesh, how I live is capable within you because of me and my spirit. We are able to live at a capacity far higher than many of us believe by the power of God himself that is at work within us. And a Christ who identifies with how hard it is to love even those who hate us. Friends, we are capable of so much more as Christians. And the excuse that he is Jesus and I am not is not an excuse that Jesus will let you get by on. Too many Christians. Too many of us. Oh, no, no, Stu, come on now. Be reasonable. I'm not Jesus. But Jesus would have us believe that this kind of way is possible. So I say to you right now, and I, when I was preparing this message, I said, Lord, so many of our people have some tough stuff. You know, I've been through tough stuff. I talk about it a lot of times. But sometimes you share your stories with me and it just shocks me how hard your life has been in some ways. And I'm not trying to be discouraging and depressing. I'm just being honest with you. Some of you have been through some hard stuff, but I want you to believe Jesus' words. You are capable of living this life. You are able of living this transformative life. You are able, of, able to, according to Jesus, to love even your enemies. I know it sounds like weird stuff I'm preaching, but the more weird I sound, the more I feel like I'm being who Jesus wants me to be. Pray for that. When they mocked him, he did not speak ill of them. When they forced him on a cross, he carried it as far as he could. And when they nailed him to that instrument of torture, he prayed for his tormentors. I challenge you, as I challenge myself to the, through the word, to live a life that is far beyond what is acceptable in our culture. 
I challenge you to not ask what is the reasonable action when it comes to hard situations and people, but what does it mean to be Christ? God's word for us today. And I, for one, I'm convicted by it. When I was preparing this message, um, I thought to myself, and I always try to believe this of myself, that I preach with conviction because it has to be true for me. And I want to say to you that the preacher must also be convicted through what he preaches at times. And so, as your pastor, I want to say to you that I have a long ways to go here. And if some of you were honest, you'd probably say, so do I, Stu, so do I. But it's possible. The world will not be changed unless the love of God so deeply permeates our life that we love even those who hate us. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you for your word to me, a hard word. I don't set out to preach hard words, Lord. (laughs) A hard word for me to hear because I recognize in my own family and in my own relationships with others, I'm in need of such grace. Sometimes I don't offer grace because I'm blind to how much grace has already been offered to me. I pray that you would always remind us But for God's grace, (laughs) where would we be? I pray also this morning that instead of just this being a message of, yeah, that was okay and theological, perhaps even biblical, uh, that you would bring to mind what obedience looks like. What being doers of your word means. We are a very educated culture. We know a lot about the Bible, but Father, the Word of God was never just given so that we would be smart people. It was given so that we would be a part of your kingdom. Sharing the kind of grace that our world so desperately needs because we have desperately needed it. So, by your Spirit, Allow us to be obedient to your word today. Allow us to know at least what the next step looks like, whether it be an act of kindness, a conversation, a telephone call, a text, whether it be beginning to pray for that difficult person in our life, and uh, perhaps it even means going to someone that has hurt and offended us with the pure intention of being reconciled to them, whatever. Whatever that looks like, I pray that that would be our worship today. So that the world would know what love looks like. Father, I pray for um, those amongst us who carry deep hurt. So deep uh, that many layers of life and experience and years have, uh, have kind of made us at least cope. I pray that we would live for much more than just coping. 
I pray that you would bring liberation and healing. That even in these moments of prayer, as I pray, that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us where your Spirit is moving within our hearts and who is moving us towards. Father, we are your children, and we desire to live a life that is worthy of representing you. Grant us the grace to be gracious. In Jesus' name, amen.